0: Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. You're home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you wanna join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other remember the Without killing each other part a lot of some folks are forgetting that part I am your host Corey Nathan and I am very very grateful to have this place to talk about faith and politics and all these ideas that I'm excited about it, it moves our culture and and I get to have these conversations with really impressive people that I've been following and reading and listening to for a long time and today's certainly no exception. So, with Talk Politics and Religion, killing each other, remember to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you have and you're digging what we do, please tell a friend, give us a good rating, leave a review. The easiest way to find us is our main site, which is www.politicsandreligion.us. All of that helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversation, like the one we're having today with Lucy Caldwell. Lucy Caldwell has charted a renowned career in the private and public sectors in politics and tech. She notably served as former Congressman Joe Walsh's campaign manager during his presidential primary challenge against Trump and formed Mockingbird Lab to get issue advocacy organizations to shift towards data driven tactics. Until 2019, Lucy served as the chief strategy officer and EVP at CrowdScout when the company was named the best advocacy technology platform by Campaigns and Elections Magazine. You probably recognize Lucy from appearances on CNN, Fox News, Fox Business, NPR, among others, and as a regular contributor on one of my favorite podcasts, Politicology. But today she is appearing on TP&R. Lucy Caldwell, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing really well. it's great to be with you Corey. How are you?
0: I am doing good, but I have to be honest I have a bone to pick with you oh. um yeah <laughs> so in doing my research, I am now convinced that you either invented Twitter 4chan and perhaps even truth social or you are the direct inspiration for such grievance driven platforms but I have proof here's my this is what my theory is is based on in talking about social media profiles way back in 2006, this is what you had to say an entire element of my personality is left out you were talking to zuckerberg an entire element of my personality is left out my aversions we need a grievances section on our facebook pro- profiles you <laughs> this is great you went on to say God. the prevalence of the positive on facebook.com you called it is getting old that was from harvard crimson circa 2006 <laughs> lucy m Caldwell, got- what say <laughs> you've you
1: you've got You've gone way back. You've gone way back. We're now in my my college columns. I think that was satire, but (laughs) that was an interesting era in my life.
0: Well, you know, it really was. First of all, uh, in all seriousness, you're writing – was thought provoking, witty. Yeah, I, I got the the satire um, and and the irony in places, but it really was um, thought provoking. And in certain places, I, I would imagine some of the things that you were writing about and the positions that you took, I would imagine you were in a pretty um, extreme minority. Maybe not extreme minority, but you, you were you were in a, a minority in, on some of those positions that you were taking.
1: Yeah, certainly. I think that during that time in my life as an undergraduate at Harvard, I think that pursuing life as an editorial columnist at the crimson i certainly knew what i was doing and knew that i was taking positions that fell a bit outside of the norm of most of my college classmates although i think that an experience that i had often during that time is that people would come up to me in the dining hall or the library and say i read your column and you know i i actually agree with you right um harvard's not such a liberal place, I think, relative to what people may think. In many ways, it's a very conventional place. So that doesn't mean it's conservative either. But it was was an interesting place to come of age, no doubt, and an interesting place to come of age while choosing to put myself out there. There's nothing quite like having a a, tra- a trail of college undergraduate columns penned probably very late at night that are still easily accessible on the internet almost 20 years later. <laughs>
0: yeah. No, it was interesting to go through that. First of all, it was hard. It, it's harder to prep for a conversation like this with you as opposed to someone whose book was just released or, you know, so sure. I, I finally came upon the Crimson, uh, the Crimson pieces um, within the last day or so. And you know, it was really interesting because i'm I'm putting I'm looking at the dates and you know, you're I think you graduated right after Obama was uh, was elected yeah. his first term. So just kind of historically contextualizing that stuff, it was really intriguing. And, and it put me back there, like, oh wow, some of the things that Lucy's talking about here, Let's track with how these uh, positions might have evolved. Um, and that just recontextualizing that. Yeah. Have you ever gone back and, and looked at some of those takes and, and kind of not maybe uh, remembered what your thinking was, but remembered what was going on at that time in Harvard and in the country more broadly?
1: Yeah, I I have. and And at that time in my life, I thought that I was going to pursue a career in journalism. That's what I felt like I was going to do and i eventually transitioned away from that for reasons that are still true about me and true about what i'm passionate about passionate about professionally i think that i always had an awareness i grew up in a relatively conservative home not a super partisan home but a conservative family and i grew up with i would say i i now see as an adult more privilege than i realized and so then i went to college at harvard where you also are surrounded by privilege and so i think that probably i had some blind spots at that time in my life about other people's contexts, and i was aware of the fact that i may have some of those blind spots but it took me a long time to figure out how to explore that so You alluded to the fact that I graduated not long after Barack Obama was elected for the first time. I think I can look back on hot takes of my own at that time and see how some of the things I said were true to me still or kernels of truth, but that I was maybe missing part of the picture. I needed to have my lens expanded a little more.
0: You know, it's funny because I, uh, in reading a couple of those pieces, I got the feeling that part of what was further cementing your conservatism was the uh, excesses of some of the progressive folks. There was a piece about – I'm not even going to call her an artist, but um, this performance provocateur from Yale, a piece that you wrote about uh, – uh, another one that you oh, wrote yeah. about the Women's Center um, and, and uh, the behavior of some of the folks – um around the women's center um that uh, you know the one of the things to that that makes makes one a conservative is the behavior of of progressives
1: yeah that's true but i also took issue sometimes with conservatives so i that tracks way back for me too so for example i wrote a column one year about how a group that was a um socially conservative group, a pro abstinence group was basically, and I think the group was called like true love revolution. And the whole, their whole shtick was basically to make the case that there's a, you know, very compelling um scientific case for abstinence. And it was all, it was this thing about sort of like, it's very, it's, it's a very important, it's very important to be abstinent in order to properly regulate oxytocin or something. These were fellow undergrads and I wrote a piece saying you should just you should just be true to yourselves and say, you know, like I have a deeply held religious conviction, right? Yeah. Or whatever, just, you know, just come out and say it, which is the kind of thing that I would probably say now. So I I think I had a I had a libertarian bent at that time in my at that time in my life. Certainly as well. I I always have been, for example, I've always been, I guess people would have then said pretty socially liberal. I've always supported gay marriage. I wrote a column in college about how we should get on board with the Jonathan Rausch argument that if you're socially conservative, you should support gay marriage because it encourages people to enter into um, you know, unions. If you're part of that, this is it's so crazy now to think we're now this in the last several weeks, days Biden signed yeah. a federal law. But I mean, we were not even, we didn't, we hadn't even had the Supreme Court case yet at the time that I was writing this. And I wrote that if if the argument against gay lifestyles is that they're lascivious or whatever, then you should encourage unions like marriages. And actually what was so interesting about being a libertarian y kind of free thinker, I would say on a campus like Harvard's at that time is that I got flack about that piece from um, liberal faculty members.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's interesting.
1: Yes. So, so there was no, there was no winning.
0: (laughs) Was it just reflexive or why, why would you get flack for that, a piece like that?
1: I got flack because I, and it was a Dean, it was a Dean. And so, you know, I was, I would often write pieces and then I would get, I would get, emails from Harvard faculty members, which you can say, well, they were just trying to have a discourse with you. Or it was a little, sometimes a little creepy. I was like (laughs) 19, 20 year old undergraduate. Um, But I got flack for that piece because they said, this person, this Dean who wrote to me said that I was, I was propping up. I, I basically was propping up that idea that uh, you know, to be gay in America means that you're promiscuous, which oh. I don't know how anyone would have found that. But so.
0: <laughs> yeah. I've, yeah. So you mentioned libertarian. I remember listening to Sarah Palin's, I think it was her convention speech where she was loosely quoting from the opening of, uh, I want to say it was Walden. It was um, definitely Thoreau. Um, what What did you make of Sarah Palin at uh, being a sort of libertarian esque? I think you said, um, what did you make of Sarah Palin at the time?
1: Gosh, Sarah Palin is like one of the most embarrassing (laughs) (laughs) kind of like pox on anyone who came from the conservative movement in that time and or who was writing. And I during that cycle, I got a call from Elle magazine saying that they would like me to become a blogger. This would have been in 2008, so this was blogs were that you know traditional magazines were beginning to have blogs, and that they were going to have a liberal blogger and a conservative blogger, and they would love for me to be the conservative blogger. And I, you know, it was like a paying journalism job. It was so cool, a national publication. So I had a blog called Right Angles. And immediately you cannot, I think you cannot find this on the internet, unlike some of those columns. So that's fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) And so I, I was probably making like $50 a blog or something, but I got this gig and I started writing these blogs and then Sarah Palin immediately becomes the nominee right around that time. And I really did my best to find all that there was to like and tout about Sarah Palin and the ways in which I felt that she was being unfairly targeted, and in looking back, I didn't write that many blog blog posts, considering how exce- it was. I couldn't. I couldn't. it was hard, but I had this special loyalty to McCain. McCain, too, yeah, right, as an Arizonan. Yeah. So I was trusting in the McCain campaign. So it it was. Uh, I was always going to be Team McCain.
0: So speaking of your writing, I I noticed that you got some really cool internships. Uh what was it? Um the Atlantic and was Slate in there somewhere? Um and and you're right, you know, writing for the Crimson. If I were tracking with you then, I could have sworn you were going the route of journalism. What was it that you you had mentioned that that you transitioned and then you went to the um to the Goldwater Institute. Um, What was it that prompted that turn?
1: Yeah, I had some great opportunities in journalism. I was really lucky. And I had some fun opportunities as an undergrad that not everyone had. Part of how I got that internship at Slate was that the summer before that, I had broken national news by revealing that this is all such throwback stuff. I haven't talked about this in ages. That... Rudy Giuliani's daughter was not supporting him because she was supporting Barack Obama on Facebook. I was suddenly whisked (laughs) away to, you know, CNN and, uh, you know, doing national media about this is like a crazy, this is in 2007. Anyway, when Facebook wasn't even really a thing for campaigns. So I had a lot of cool opportunities, but I also would would finish journalism jobs at great publications and feel a little bit unfulfilled. Um, and I also had an awareness that I i think I, I also had an awareness that I was never going to have as much editorial autonomy in any of those jobs as I did as an undergraduate columnist, oh, wow. right? It's hard to make a living as a journalist. And this was kind of like the peak Fox girl era. So if seriously, and so if I were going to make a real living in journalism, one obvious route for me was going to be to just be kind of a, a screamer, right? To be a person who took really intense positions and, you know, tried to get on television. And that wasn't really... For me, when I was, I remember in college, people would come up and say these things like, you're kind of like the, you're kind of like the Ann Coulter of Harvard. And I didn't feel like that was great. Yeah. <laughs> and I ultimately realized that uh, I kind of fell into working for the Goldwater Institute because something took me back to Phoenix, my hometown, that was kind of unexpected. And I uh, realized that I really liked doing the work of matching people up to causes they care about and to affecting the change that I'd been writing about like affecting policy changes and really seeing forward motion. And I respect journalists. I have journalists in my family. That was part of why I had thought I might, I think that's part of what attracted me to journalism. I still love um being able to keep my foot in. I love being able to do commentary. I love writing still, but a lot of journalism, a lot of journalists often find themselves in positions where they're kind of, they're really on the sidelines. I mean, hope hopefully they are, right? Because that's what makes them objective, but I really wanted to be in the game. yeah. And I, I think that over the years, since then I've done a range of things. And, and what I've really come to realize is that what I'm ultimately interested in, that is the thread from those times as an undergrad or even experiences earlier in my life to working in public policy at Goldwater and lobbying to um, helping to start Crowd Scout. all of this is I'm kind of obsessed with just persuasion generally. Mm. Why do people become fervent about one cause and get spun up on Twitter about it while other really worthy causes die on the vine? You know, why is it that uh, changes that 60%, 70% of Americans could say they want to have happen just never come to be? Why is it that, you know, policy reforms that for years, someone's been trying to keep the drumbeat up about kind of like explode overnight, right? Like what causes something to have a moment versus something else. And that's what I'm always striving to understand. And I think what really drives me.
0: So that, that does make so much sense, but that's not, you know, studying American and British literature and history Does it necessarily lend itself? I would I would think that a lot of your have you subsequently studied like sociology, anthropology, psychology, you know, to to equip you to do exact. Or is it vocationally that you've observed and have built on that like a vocational education um, as you go along? Do you know what I'm asking? I'm sorry. Yeah,
1: I think it's a mix. This is the most I've talked about Harvard in probably ever, but in something like this. So this is, I don't want to leave people with the impression that I go around just sort of like talking about my time at Harvard. No, I'm asking
0: the question. So I'm kind of leading you there.
1: One thing that is really central to the ethos of Harvard is the idea that it is a liberal arts education and that you are, it's less important what you're studying. Obviously, this has some limitations. Like if you're planning to become a, you know, like a medical researcher, you probably need to take some pre-med courses, right? Yeah, or yeah. right. Um, but that what you're doing actually is that you are in your coursework learning an approach. And you're learning an approach that prepares you for the life of the mind. And so you should leave college really orienting yourself to the fact that you may shift a lot and that you are going to take that. Lens of that liberal arts education into everything you do, and so i I do think that i've I do think that I've done that. Now, I was a really, really terrible student undergrad, so how well I've done it, I just don't know. M- most of my time was spent on uh, writing Crimson columns, but i've I've done that in recent years, especially in in trying to understand myself in this new political era, because I always felt strongly especially if I was going to be putting myself out there, writing about, taking positions in writing, staking a position that, and this is very earnest. This is like a little, maybe will sound embarrassing, but this is a truly, I don't regret this very earnest thing about my 17-year-old self was this idea that my, my readers, however many of them, right? Like <laughs> my mom, my dad, <laughs> my grandparents, my roommate, awesome. whatever, my five readers, that they should be able to know me and and trust that i uh, that i applied a certain lens to situations right and that so that if i were writing about something that they weren't familiar with or whatever that even if they didn't agree with my lens or viewpoint they could trust that my take was true to that lens or that framework that i had established for myself and that Remained true for me in a lot of the work I did throughout working in public policy, working for the Goldwater Institute, which is a, was, it's changed a lot, but it was a libertarian leaning state based policy think tank. I lobbied in more than 30 states on the ground for Goldwater all over the country, passing model legislation. And that framework was really important to me. And so as the Trump era unfolded and I found myself feeling like I could never. Dream of supporting the vast majority of Republicans in this era, kind of coming to terms with, okay, so I'm I'm not a Democrat, but I'm a person who works to get Democrats elected and supports Democrats. Who am I philosophically? That led me to go back to a lot of foundational reading, uh a political philosophy, but also discovering and unlocking a lot of new. Ways of thinking that I've tried to be open to, and certainly psychology. To your question about persuasion, comes into it. So becoming a student also of people like Robert Shaldini, who wrote, you know, the book Persuasion. Authors like that are huge for sure.
0: Yeah, you know, you reminded me. I very rarely talk about my work in entertainment advertising, but um, you reminded me, one one of the most successful uh, marketers. Of the last at least twenty five years, um, he's actually still a relatively young man. A guy named Josh Goldstein. He went to Harvard uh, and um, studied philosophy. And what one of the things that surprises me is we don't necessarily talk. I I expect that he's going to talk about you know some sophisticated strategies that he ran to open. You know, he, at being at Warner, you know, you open a, a Christopher Nolan movie. It's it's one thing, but he he takes a lot of pride in what what they call lipstick on a pig. He, he, you know, like taking the ones that are just impossible to open and he opens them. But he says it comes down to marketing 101. He still he always brings it back to marketing 101. And I've heard similar things in in your analysis and commentary that it's what's your brand? What you know, what's the title? What is the audience for that title? Where is that audience? And how do you effectively engage with that audience? wherever it is that you might engage with them, you know, not to oversimplify it, but if you keep those, that basic, you know, point bullet points, you know, four or five bullet points in mind, as you're rolling out these strategies, then it's easier to keep your eye on the compass, the right compass. He says the difference though, is when he first got into the industry, the, there was a much more limited number of places that you'd have to show up it was the trailer the poster and tv spots and that was it now it's a lot it's a lot more ubiquitous i would imagine there's a lot of parallels in launching a movie and trying to get a uh, a candidate elected
1: that's that's probably true i think something i was just talking about this today with a friend of mine who's been around in politics and democratic politics for a long time about that that nexus between marketing and politics and I'd be interested in what you think of it. I often hear from, and I'm a person who spent a lot of my career trying to get out of politics and I'm just always <laughs> sort of like trying to claw my way out and somewhat, you know, I'm sucked back in. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so you could do, hear- do
0: the quote, you know, you want to do the Al Pacino quote right now though. <laughs> Talking to entertainment, they pull me back in. Yeah, Come on. Yeah, they do. <laughs>
1: um, so it was a lot of a lot of uh, marketing sector players want to get into politics. I find, and companies that are doing, you know, like selling into financial services decide they want to sell into campaigns. And I, my first question is always why campaigns are the worst clients ever. But the other big difference is that. Now, I'm totally a believer where I'm going to like kind of get into some marketing speak. I'm totally a believer that campaigns and issue advocacy groups, any outfit trying to affect change should borrow a lot from marketing approaches. Things like, okay, when do people come into your funnel? Can we track the customer journey of these people? Because ultimately, we're just trying to sell them on an idea. We're trying to sell them on voting for you giving money, door knocking, whatever. But the biggest difference is that it's always existential, right? Like it is always existential. So if I'm trying to sell someone on a candidate, it's like, we all have one vote. There's one time that you can go vote for Corey Nathan in whatever the year 2020 for XYZ seat, right? Now you might run again in a different election Right. And there'll be, but, but in that there's only like one bite at the apple in that it is, it is for all time in contrast to say, if I'm trying to sell you toothpaste, I hope you buy Colgate this month, but if you don't, it's okay. I have another opportunity to sell you on Colgate next month, even though you bought crest. And likewise, while it's true, that, I'm, that I know movies and this is, anyway, I'm interested in your take on this, but I know yeah. movies, like, yes, it's box office sales and stuff. I'm quickly getting out of my depth, but there is an opportunity for people to then transact with the movie in the future in a different way, right? Like you can push, uh, <laughs> like net, push the movie on Netflix or, yeah. you know, whatever. So that is, I think, one of the weird pieces of the, political, the kind of marketing versus politics, not to crack that we just haven't quite gotten to in a way. I don't know. Maybe I'm taking us in a direction that's a little strange.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. I think you're onto something, actually. I remember having this conversation, another brilliant, brilliant person named Christine Birch uh, mentioned had actually got into politics. And ch- she said that There is a direct correlation specifically with theatrical marketing. Now, we're in a moment in time in history when theatrical marketing is being completely redefined. Uh, There, As recently as pre-pandemic, as 2019, film was really dependent on opening weekend. Now, yes, there are these other windows, but you're not going to do well in those other windows, whether it's, it was home entertainment back in the day or streaming or cable or what have you. You're not going to do nearly as well. You're not going to get nearly the the fees um, if your opening weekend just didn't uh, didn't work. However, on the broadcast side, you have a whole season to build an audience. So the marketing proposition, the marketing objectives are different depending on the medium that you're in. So I do think that there's it's, – it's interesting to look at it. I think that uh, there when there have been crossovers, for example, in 2020, um, there were quite a few theatrical marketing creatives. Like all the people that were making the fodder that Lincoln Project was using, mm-hmm. were, so so many of them were trailer makers because they could crank this stuff out. Six-second bumpers, 15, 30-second spots, like, it, it, like in their sleep. Because the proposition was the same, the urgencies were the same. And they created these mythological, they mythologized characters the way that you have to mythologize a movie or certain characters in um, you know, in a series. So yeah, there are definitely a lot of comparisons. Um now, those crossovers haven't always been successful, but I, I think it's the ones that have, it's getting back to those basics. What's the brand? Who's the audience? Where's the audience, and how do you engage with that audience? That's what fascinates me, by the way, about your um, work in tech. Is that, and I don't quite understand it. So I was going to ask you to help me understand, uh, as Denzel Washington uh, in, in his character in Philadelphia would say, as if I were a six-year-old, what what Crowd Scout does and what you did when you were at Crowd Scout.
1: Well, fortunately, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately for CrowdScout, we were not selling to six-year-olds. So <laughs> I have not perfected my elevator pitch to six-year-olds. And okay. tech changes quickly. So I left CrowdScout when we sold in early 2019. And so it's been a while. Um, but ultimately, I mean, a lot of it at that time was a lot of what I just evangelized, which is this idea that in any kind of outreach, you know, you know, you have like People phoning you, you have people trying to figure things out about you based on the voter file. You have uh, people door knocking, sending you direct mail, sending you ads. And there's there's a great John Wanamaker quote about marketing that is like half of my half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. I just don't know which half, right? And that yeah. is very true for campaigns. And it was especially true some years ago. We started CrowdScout in 2014. So CrowdScout basically was a platform that, and it's now part of a company called Helm. It was the anchor acquisition as part of a series of acquisitions. Uh, But CrowdScout broke down the silos that exist between your different streams of data. So instead of having your field team operating in a silo from your advocacy team or your fundraisers, you should be able to bring all of those disparate streams of data together to really inform your approach to outreach and building two-way relationships with your supporters. So instead of just saying, like, show me men in Kansas Congressional District 1 who are between 35 and 40 and married, you'd say, show me those men in Kansas Congressional District 1 who are you know between 35, 40, married, and took an action on our website last week. Or you know took an action on our website last week and were door knocked to right or saw this ad, so being able to build better and better understandings of your audience and a lot of that comes down to, I think breaking and this is still a big problem in politics, breaking the over reliance on third party data and encouraging people to really uh, work to collect first party data and to really form. A friend of mine really doesn't like using the term audience. He likes talking about community because audience just sounds like something you're just... Yeah, exactly. And community is having a, a feedback loop, engagement with them. Right. And so there's also a lot of psychology on how if you can get people to engage with your content and tell you about themselves, so things like offering them the chance to sign a petition or take a poll, they're more likely to continue to be supporters of yours, right? They start to feel like they have skin in the game. They're more likely to give you a donation. They're more likely to show up to a volunteer opportunity. They're more likely to vote for you. They're more mm-hmm. likely to tell their friends to vote for you. And so you know, it's along the way in the CrowdScout era, we actually had an acquisition offer from a company that was not very well known then, um, but now is infamous. And it was an acquisition offer by the company Cambridge Analytica. Oh, (laughs) wow. (laughs) And ultimately we didn't do the deal because it was like a a mostly equity swap and it seemed not like, not like a great offer. Thank God. I'm so glad that we never took that offer, but in, you know, in hindsight, one of the things that kind of bugs me about the way that people talk about companies like Cambridge Analytica and companies in that era, because that was like a golden moment for yeah. tech, in political tech. There was so much new tech. There was, you know, peer-to-peer texting, relational organizing, like very efficient, uh, like campaign pledge drives, just so many new tools. And we yeah. actually just have not really seen that in recent, the last couple of cycles. But Cambridge Analytica was a tool that was really relying on stuff that is BS, like psychographic data and how could we predict if someone, you know, who had a a subscription to Scotch enthusiasts in 2004 and, you know, likes oat milk in their lattes, he's probably going to take this action. The best way to find out if someone is going to support you or whether they feel a certain way is to ask them, right? (laughs) So some of this, some of the best tech tools in issue advocacy and campaigns now, I think are issues that are campaign tools that streamline really back to basics tactics where we scale human interaction, like we scale getting to know each other instead of trying to triangulate (laughs) You know, and and that's actually really, I, I don't have a better, more updated stat, but that's borne out in how we see people behave. When in 2016, you can see that people who were supporters of like John Kasich, Rubio and Cruz, many of the, you could take segments of that population and track back and say, these people look a lot alike, like they have similar socioeconomic markers, they're, you know, similar education levels, whatever, similarly situated in life. Well, those supporters of those politicians, those politicians wound up becoming completely different figures in this era, right? Oh, and you yeah. don't know what happened to their supporters, but we could, if we take that, those guys as proxies for their supporters, which is imperfect, but Probably if we went and found some of those people, you know, it would turn out that some of them are never Trumpers and some of them are like big time MAGA heads, right? Yeah. So like the the marketing side kind of like, well, he's a Volvo driving, latte drinking person, you know, it it doesn't always translate in that same way. In part because there's so much different types of emotion in politics and there's also again, it's you've got one shot, right? We all have one vote. Yeah. So you don't, we don't individually have the kind of elasticity to like, you know, I I'm gonna vote for both Biden and Trump because like I like both. Like you know, I'm gonna buy Coke sometimes and Pepsi another time, right? right or like Right. I have both mayonnaise and Miracle Whip in my fridge. I have both butter and margarine because I like to, you know, and Crisco because I use Crisco for baking, but butter for my toast, right? You can't do that in politics. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. It's funny because you're reminding me of so... There there really are a lot of parallels in entertainment. A lot of... At that same time, when you were at CrowdScout, that was about the time that Netflix in particular was really disrupting how marketing was done. A lot of other... Whether it was a a broadcast or cable company or even uh, the major studios, obviously demographics, psychographics, right? But what Netflix was doing... They were they were aggregating titles out to uh, people based on actual behavior. Uh, a, fel- a friend of mine who went over there, um, who who's still working at Netflix now, um, shared some some insights. And this this later got published as a really long piece in Vulture a few years ago. That they didn't care if it was I don't know a sixteen year old uh, white girl in Minnesota uh, or a sixty year old. Uh, dude in you know rural India um, if they were both watching the same three princess movies and they watched it for a certain amount of time they were get those they were it was based on their actual behavior that they were that certain titles were going to get aggregated or pushed out to them as opposed to oh well, you're in this quadrant so we're gonna market this stuff to you. so it's interesting to hear some of the um, uh, so, some of what you're sharing about how it's working behind the scenes and people trying to figure it out on the political side. Um, I had a, I had a, we haven't even talked about Joe Walsh yet. <laughs> we're getting off the, off the rails here. So were you already done with CrowdScout when, when, and had you, had you run a campaign at that point or did you just dive into presidential level campaigns and how, how did that, how did that transition happen? <sighs>
1: Yeah. So I, I had been involved in campaigns in the past and and mostly um, ballot initiatives were my bread and butter. I'd run some ballot initiatives kind of in conjunction with my work at Goldwater, but ballot initiatives are a different animal. When I was first coming up, ballot initiatives are amazing. If anyone listening is like a young person looking to get engaged in politics, get into ballot initiatives. They're awesome. But I uh, they don't lose primaries. That's a great thing. Yeah. They don't have scandals. They don't have skeletons in their closet. (laughs) They're predictable. (laughs) They don't say dumb stuff that you wish they wouldn't. But I really had become immersed in Republican politics, in Republican electoral politics, in my work at Crowdscout. Uh, Crowdscout was a nonpartisan company, but my background was the right. We had an angel investor who was a big donor to the right. And At that time, the Republican side was very, very underserved by tech tools and the left was swimming in good tech tools. And people have been there's been coverage lately in the aftermath of this most recent cycle about how Republicans are going to do another postmortem led by Blake Masters. But uh, in (laughs) around that time that we started Crowdscout in 2014, that was after people were still feeling really bruised by 2012. And they'd gone through this autopsy and famous autopsy. And one of the big takeaways was they needed to build a better tech stack. And so for us, a young company that was trying to find our product market fit, it was like match made in heaven. And so by 2016, a year and a half into basically from having no customers to being operating with, as a, as a company, we had seven of the 17 Republican primary presidential primary candidates in 2016, we had all the committees, the RNC was a massive anchor client for us, we built, um, we built all the tech infrastructure for their field program at that time, and so I was really watching kind of from the inside what was happening on the Republican side of things. And so I was watching with horror, frankly. And so when um when we sold CrowdScout and I was looking for my next act, I thought I'm gonna go start another product company, I'm gonna go, you know, raise a venture capital round, gonna do that. And then my inner masochist, my <laughs> inner masochist surfaced, bubbled up to the top. And I thought, I need to get in touch with my friends in the Never Trump movement because I think I could really help them think about uh, a data strategy. You know, mm. I, I hear they're thinking about fielding a candidate this is in spring, early summer of twenty
0: nineteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: like I'm gonna help. Th- I'm gonna help them. I've just I've spent years working with their enemy now, right? Like this is I know what they're up against. Like. I know how they're up against, you know, what was then Rev is now WinRed. Like, I know what they're up against. And so (laughs) I got in touch with my friends, Bill Crystal and Sarah Longwell. And Sarah Longwell and I went to drinks and I said, how can I be helpful? And she said, have you ever heard of a guy named Joe Walsh? (laughs) And she said, well, he's running, so you should talk to him. And you know, a few weeks later, I found myself like in Iowa with Joe, somehow having <laughs> agreed to take on the kamikaze campaign that was was that election cycle. But I, part of what I really liked about that work and and felt happy and fulfilled about by it was that I really and I still think this. I really felt at the time that the only way that we were going to win against Trump. And I still think this, the only way that we're going to win against Trumpism or what I think is now really a form of toxic populism is by giving people an off-ramp. Mm. And so I thought that Joe's story was really important and very yeah. compelling. And and I don't think that every, you know, like your neighbor down the street who used to have a Trump yard sign, but is now like Biden curious. I don't think that private individual voters need to like you know go through the giant public awakening and kind of like apology tour that joe walsh subjected himself to but i think that it's really important if you're from my vantage point a person who's on the side of democracy to really give people who are putting themselves out there especially high profile people who are saying i'm leaving this behind this is not good we've got to stop this i want to be part of the solution You have to give those people grace. Like I'm not a Ted Cruz fan, but if tomorrow Ted Cruz woke up and genuinely was like, hey, this has gone too far and I want to be part of the solution, I would welcome Ted Cruz into the fold. I might feel like, oh, and I'd want to make sure it was genuine. But Lindsey Graham, come on in. The water's warm. So to me, that campaign, more than anything else, partly symbolized how i think we should orient ourselves to to our fellow americans in this era
0: oh there's so much there there is so much there so yeah joe is such a compelling figure to me because he wasn't only like a tea party firebrand he was a leading voice in conservative media uh for you know at least half a decade if not if not longer and um his his willingness to, and, and I think he knew what he was up against. It wasn't just like mean tweets like, hey, dude, you left the team. He, he was – I was curious if you were facing – because he's pretty open about the the volume of death threats and, and the seriousness of those threats. Were you up against some of that stuff as well?
1: Yeah, definitely not in the volume that Joe was. But uh, uh, yeah, scary stuff. But it also doesn't – it doesn't take – it doesn't take that many – violently inclined crazy people to make you feel miserable and like you're unsafe. Mm. Because if even like a tiny fraction of 1% of the people who disagree with you decide that they're going to write you a gruesome letter or um, do things to intimidate you outside your home or follow you from your apartment to a target is a thing that happened to me during that time. And really, it, that can seem, I mean, that stops you in your tracks, but in a way it can also be helpful to remember. I mean, you, then you have to go through like letting the authorities know and following the proper channels. That's super important, but it's, it's designed to intimidate you and to make you shut up. That's the, that's why people do that but it's also it remembering that and remembering this is this is still a fraction right Of yeah. this is this person does not represent the way that this work is being received by the broader community i'm a pretty maybe you can tell i'm a, a fundamentally pretty positive i i am not joe says that he's a dark irishman and uh i am not i'm a very positive i uh like I'm going to manifest something good kind of, yeah. kind of gal. But, but yeah, I mean, Joe certainly made sacrifices that were huge, huge. And I think he knew that he couldn't, he couldn't put that back in the bottle. um And, and he's stayed true to it.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because you reminded me of some of what I was thinking on the eve uh, January, on the, the night, January 6th, like once we were into the night and we heard people like Lindsey Graham, I'm done. I'm, you know, cut, you know, um, having that come into Jesus moment, uh, which they subsequently. Yeah, you know. yeah. Um, But I wrote to, uh, and he just got reelected, my congressman, Mike Garcia in California, 27. And I said, Mike, I don't know what you're facing right now, man. I, I can only imagine because I, I see some of the comments that are going on and uh, your Twitter feed, your Facebook feed, you, you know, I, I saw some of that stuff. So I will, I, I cannot judge you if you have to vote a certain way. You know, he has, he has, uh, you know, young kids and, um, but looking back, man, I, I was writing that partly just to empathize with the impossible position he was in and having to cast that vote. But, but, and I don't know what I would have done, you know, if I were facing that in, in that particular party, I'd like to think though that I was one of how, how many um Republicans ended up voting I know it was about 140 or so voted to challenge the electoral votes of Arizona and Pennsylvania um so it must have been what about 60 or so that that decided not to challenge um I'd like to think that if I was a Republican I'd I'd, I'd vote that way um
1: most many of them were not reelected yeah the ones who vote. but but I think it's okay to hold elected leaders to a higher standard. And I think that it's right to expect them to make those hard choices. And it's right to help make sure that their families are safe and assure, assure that they have security if they need to and to expect the Secret Service to do their job. But I don't think I, I think that voting against certifying the election is so destructive and in is almost violent in and of itself. I mean, it's really threatens the peaceful transition of power. That was, there's no doubt that that was a lot of those guys knew what they were stirring up. I mean, Josh Hawley went out and held up a fist. Yeah. So, so I don't, I think that it's okay. Part of what I was saying, you know, when I think about giving grace to a person down the street who decides they, want to participate in politics that are not toxic, that I wouldn't hold Joe, like, hold that person to the say. I don't need them to do an apology tour the way we might expect a public person like Joe and what he did in the in the aftermath of coming out and saying he was not going to be part of the problem. Yeah. But so by the same token, I think it's OK to hold our elected leaders whom we're entrusting with a lot of power to a higher standard than we might, because they're choosing not to be anonymous. They're choosing to put themselves out there and we could have a whole discussion about that and whether or not the pressures that we're putting on, on all the things that come along with the public, public life of being a public servant are good or not, or how to recalibrate. But everyone who's running for office in the modern era does know what they're up against. And it's. I think we're entrusting them with all types of power, power to uh, and, and trusting them not to be corrupt. We're trusting them not to engage in like backroom dealings to enrich themselves. We're trusting them to hold state secrets and not give it to our foreign adversaries. And so trusting them to safeguard our democracy and do the right thing. I think it's something that we have to insist upon.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, so you mentioned Bill Crystal and his, uh, the Republican Accountability Project was really clarifying for me. And it, and as Mike's uh, full term and now his second full term is unfolding, it gave me something to watch, his public statements, his voting record. And this is not Georgia 14. This is not the, the 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 district that uh MTG moved into uh in order to have like a a Trump plus 80 or whatever it was. This is this is California 27. This is uh now it's actually a Biden I think it's plus 8 or plus 10. Uh the 2020 vote was decided by 333 votes out of over 340,000 that were cast. It's a purple district. But Mike's voting record, you would think he was in Georgia 14. That's what was so confounding. You know, Even though that night I was trying to hold out some grace and say, I can't judge you. I'm, I know that you're under threat. I know your family's under threat. So if you have to cast a vote this way, I'm trying not to – I'm trying to hold some space for that level of grace. But there were so many you, – you, you mentioned the word off There were so many off-rems. There were so many – Easy votes, low-hanging fruit for him to just cast one vote that didn't go with freaking, you know, the 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 Mac yeah. base. And he he never took it.
1: And not to mention, you're in California. So he is in a state that has passed structural reforms that that help to break up the party, the power of parties in and, and help to break up some of the factors that create polarization and extremism in our politics. I mean uh, part of why you see, you can see purple states wind up with matchups like, you know, Carrie Lake and, and Katie, Katie Hobbs, Hobbs right? Yeah. It's like Arizona is a purple state, but Carrie Lake uh, <laughs> got their Republican primary and Karen Robeson, her primary opponent, couldn't because she's too moderate. And the Republican Party in Arizona is nuts, right? In California, you don't, you, you guys were at the vanguard. You don't, Mike Garcia doesn't have to go basically kiss the ring of Republican party. Uh, It's he's not dealing with some kind of like Republican party patronage scenario. So he should be unfettered by that. And in fact, when you look at the members of the Senate who voted to convict and impeachment, many of them, the thing that they have in common is being from states.
0: That, that open have, open primaries, yeah,
1: nonpartisan, uh, nonpartisan primaries, ranked choice voting. And then there's like Ben Sass and Mitt Romney, but they're they're from there, they are not beholden to party power, which I mean to me, that's one of the that's a great case for uh for some of those structural reforms. And so that's part of what makes the example of Mike Garcia. All the more disappointing, you know. It's he doesn't. He's he's choosing that. At some point, it's like that's who he is.
0: Yeah, it was it was so disappointing to see him win, and he won even he won. I I wouldn't say decisively, but he won more decisively than the one tenth of one percent that he won in uh, twenty twenty. But this is where I uh, before we started recording, I told you I have a conspiracy theory, and okay. you being in tech. Tell me, uh, tell me how I, I think I have some ingredients, but maybe not the recipe. I'm thinking of it as algorithmized politics, and what I mean is um, that Mike, whether he's getting talking points from a Win Red or mm. s- some other firm like that, he's 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 staying true to this message that he knows has been tested by. Uh, buy a WinRed, for example, um, and, and for fundraising purposes. Uh, and his comms team is getting the 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 memo. Um, and that's what he's sticking to. He's not really – because look, the dude is not out doing town halls. He's not going to coffee. He's not coming to the um, – he's not yeah, coming yeah. to m- our, our <laughs> Chamber of Commerce meeting. He's not talking to guys like me that are right of center, kind of libertarian leaning. Um, li- I would say libertarian, um, socially – fiscally conservative, small business, fiscal conservative. He's not talking to guys like me. Um, He's not making himself available. He's staying pretty cocooned. And I think he's just getting so. okay. so I've put a lot of stuff up against the wall here, but that's kind of where my head's at. That's how that's the only way I can explain his Twitter feed, his Fox News hit, his Fox business hit and what the hell he's saying and his voting record. That's the only way I can explain it. So how far off am I or do I have a couple of these ingredients right?
1: Well, I don't know if it's a conspiracy, but I think that certainly a part of the story is that we're in an era where all politics is national now. Okay. So you mentioned Georgia 14 earlier, that's Marjorie Taylor Greene's district. And we heard a lot about that district in this cycle. And it is so appalling and absurd that we heard a lot about that district. And it is so appalling and absurd that national political strategists on the democratic side, including never Trumpers were basically propping up a fundraising machine for Marcus flowers, because that is like an R plus 30 ish district, right? right? Marcus flowers was never going to win. He was never going to beat Marjorie Taylor green. And yet he outraised many, many candidates who were in battleground districts. Why? Because we're living in an era where all of these, it's not just like, what does your local editorial board think you should do? Right. Like what is like we're not operating in in a it would be better if maybe some of our local politics were more vacuumy, right? But there's so much noise that's national noise, right? So Mike Garcia wants to raise money. He uses WinRed. What is WinRed? WinRed is a payment processor used by all Republican candidates today, right? And they have access to the Trump fundraising list. So Mike Garcia, by virtue of using WinRed, can like get eyeballs in front of Trump voters, like low dollar Trump donors. And then they have their credit card information saved and they say, click here. So he goes on Fox and he says, yada, yada, yada. Like the world is falling sky on fire, everything. The Democrats are going to eat your babies. And then a Trump voter in like Pennsylvania is like, I need to support this guy. And he's in California where the sky is already fallen and it's so terrible. And children are you know, using litter boxes. Right. And so that we have this machinery that is really bad. Yeah. So I think that's a big part of it. I don't know how to and solve this. And it's all this.
0: Hunter Biden's uh, laptop's fault.
1: Yes. <laughs> I don't know how to solve this. There's a guy who's very interesting that I've who's come on my radar, who maybe you've talked to. His name is Farhad Mohit. He's a Californian. He is he started something called the Good Party. And he his background is as a person who uh he was he was a very successful tech entrepreneur. Um, including founding a company that I think I may get this wrong called Byte Dance, that okay. was part of an acquisition that basically formed TikTok.
0: Okay. So right.
1: It was the like the music part, like music over videos. Anyway, the two companies were put together and formed TikTok. And he will even say that he feels like part of the work he does now is a very successful entrepreneur, like never needs to work again. He has put poured himself into Trying to figure out how to build capacity in the independent space. Fascinating person. And one of the things that he he will say, like, I have to, I feel like guilty about what's happened with TikTok, right? Like I feel like I bear responsibility. I'm I'm pars- I'm paraphrasing. But yeah. one of the things that he thinks is part of the solution is he thinks we are in an era of mimetic candidates, right? Like, where people want to go viral, mimetic like memes, right? Okay. People want to go viral. They want eyeballs. And we just have to accept that that's the era we're in. And, you know, the good guys, right? Have to just start participating in that. We have to use the same types of tactics that, say, Marjorie Taylor Green is using when she. <laughs> and so he says things like, we need to get celebrities, like famous celebrities, famous musicians who have millions and millions of followers to become conduits to getting good candidates in front of their audiences, right? So he's very focused on how to operationalize that. And I totally understand that. He's a fascinating guy. It's an interesting thesis. But to me, and this is like, there's so much of this. I mean, there's so many people. I was talking to someone the other day who's concerned about toxic populism but is basically using the tools of populism to try to fight toxic populism but so much of this feels like even some of our solutions to these problems we quickly find ourselves actually like in this um arms race right where we're just building on top of it more and more tools and tactics that reinforce this kind of brain rot that we're in Mm -hmm. of of how we consume you know like uh, Fox has captured people's imagination. So then another cable network is like, how do we do that? Right? Like people aren't tuning into shows to learn about topics. They're tuning in to have their views reinforced. <laughs> so I don't have an answer to this, Corey. Maybe you do, but it's, it's very complicated. I, I
0: yeah, no, I, you know, you bring up, um, an interesting point that I don't know if it's been discussed enough. We're talking about the politics side, but I think what is, a substratum for the politics side is the media environment. You know, so many of my friends that are good people, good people that I like. If we're just if we're going to the Chamber of Commerce uh, tomorrow morning, yeah. seven a.m. every Friday for the last twelve years, I've been going to this business meeting. That's um, how I start my Friday and sort of begin the end of my week is getting together with people, just local business people, a local, you know, financial planner, a lo- the, the local balloon lady, the local you know, our our coffee shop. It's just a great group of people. But, you know, we sit down and and uh, after our board meetings once a month, sometimes a few of us will stick around and talk politics. And usually we're a few glasses of wine in by then. And it amazes me, good, smart people, fam- like just ha- have a lot of the same values that I do. As soon as I say, as soon as I bring up, well, you know, January 6th was pretty historic and it was pretty important what's, what what's happening. And it's still happening, this anti-democracy thing. When this person says to me, well, what about the people who are storming Portland and just yeah. parrot like, something? That was bad, also. <laughs> yes, that was bad, also. But you know, we're talking like yeah. they're like what, what? do we? He's just parroting a talking point that he may maybe heard on Will Cow or or yeah. um, Tucker or Hannity or what have you, and he's just you know it, it confounds me. So I think I think that we're sort of we're, we're the the air that we're breathing is Fox News, OANN, uh, Breitbart. Um, you know, Ben Shapiro is – every once in a while, he's interesting. <laughs> I, I don't know what you think of Ben Shapiro, but, but every once in a while, he surprises me by, like
1: – Well, he was an original Never Trumper, so.
0: Yes. So maybe that's – those are the takes that, that are surprising <laughs> Sometimes me. it
1: bubbles up by accident for Ben. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, so, okay, so this goes back to another point. Oh, man, we've been talking for a while. I might not have time to talk about this. But Joe shared with me uh, – Joe Wall shared with me one of his um, most often – used tactics as a radio show host and that was he would come in in the morning prepare for the show and he would look for the dumbest most outrageous thing some progressive somewhere said mm-hmm. or did and that would become his theme for the day and you know um you still hear it so often i can't believe how often i hear this phrase this is what they do <laughs> you know um and and sort of generalize wow. something something uh, someone out something outrageous someone did in Nowersville. Um, to make it look like this is what the left is doing. This is what they want you to think. This is what they want you to do. This is what they're trying to do to us. This is what they're trying to take from us. And um, that's what is so, It's in a way, it's like the poison becomes the medicine. Having guys like Joe and Charlie Sykes is another good example. Uh, He said something similar. That's where I was thinking that, wait, is there like a memo, whether it was Karl Rove back in the day, or who's the guy that's, um, he's doing... um, He's doing – he's holding ha- – has a bunch of people in a room and he's asking people. He did it for Republican campaigns. Now he, I think he's on CNN. Oh, but.
1: Frank Luntz.
0: Luntz, thank you. Yeah. It's, does Luntz develop these talking points and send it out to all the conservative radio hosts? And now <laughs> there are these – like that's that's what I'm imagining is like – You know, my guy Garcia, my, you know, Mike Garcia is getting these talking points now daily. So I don't know.
1: (laughs) No, but I will tell you, having now worked both in Republican politics and then kind of on the edges of Democratic politics, Republicans are tactically so much more effective and better organized. You know, at this time of year. But why is that?
0: Why is that? I don't
1: know. I don't know. This time of year, it's a time where political strategists are kind of regrouping and figuring out what they're going to do next cycle and what we learned and where the levers are. And I was just at coffee. I've had, I was just at coffee with a friend yesterday who's a sometimes colleague. And I've been feeling, I've been thinking about a particular project that I'm kind of thinking about undertaking. And I keep having these conversations that all feel like a lot of people are kind of like circling around the same idea, which that's a good thing. That's a good sign. And I thought, why have I not gotten all of these people in a room together? Mm. Why hasn't someone invited me to be in a room with these people? And it's not that I'm not being invited. When I was starting out in Republican politics, I remember first campaign job, a Republican consultant whom I was working for said, listen, Lucy, every year, every election year after the election, I host a, a gathering of what he called smart friends and he said if you help me organize it uh 22 23 he said you can come and i said okay and so i i don't know like i called and got the room block or something right that was like i probably had to like make sure there was the catering arrived on time or something (laughs) (laughs) and it was people getting in a room together and saying and prominent prominent people really prominent national strategists and just kind of talking with each other about okay how how do we game this out and the left does not seem to have that actually yeah. actually the left is not that not effective at politics in that way it's been interesting to see the other side and also they're very suspicious of newcomers mm. and they're very like i've had people act like maybe i'm a secret mole for the right like yeah, I'm playing the world's dumbest <laughs> long game. I'm playing the world's dumbest long game.
0: That's so funny. This is yeah. I'm
1: so I'm so deep cover, and yeah, you know, like I don't know, seeing your email list. I mean, what are the big things I'm discovering? I'm so deep cover. I don't even know. I'm so deep cover.
0: Man, huh. so that that uh, you just reminded me of one other. We we, t- we touched on uh, Carrie Lake, uh, yeah. but but there there's another Arizona politician that this is so. There's outrage of Kirsten Cinemas declaring that she's an independent. What confounds me about that is that, is there some sort of assumed orthodoxy for the Democratic Party that you have to, like, in I, and, and a lot of the outrage, it seems that there's an alienation of the very voters who are going to decide elections. You know, guys like me are persuaded. I can be persuaded. You can You can win my vote or you can lose my vote. You know, Mike Garcia has effectively lost my vote when I voted mostly Republican in this district at the state and local level, especially. Mm-hmm. So the the outrage about cinema, man, making it really hard for me to support whatever, you know, I, I don't know. Do you, is that, um, I know that there's political, there's a political calculus there, but uh, the thing that stood out for me is like, man, for the the people, the, the band in line voters as Madrid likes to talk about, Um, I would think that a lot of them are alienated by the outrage of like her, her lack of uh, proper orthodoxy to, to the, the perfectly, you know, uh, the perfectly progressive causes and, and lines of thinking. What do you think about that?
1: I think the cinema case is a little more personal and a little more complicated. I think that I think that her narrative of becoming an independent and I'm from a family full of conservative voters who vote for cinema and like her a lot. So I get it. She, she definitely has, she def, I think the idea that you're not representing Arizona she is, she is like people she's popular, but the idea that the democratic party in Arizona is so orthodox that you know, there's no room for free thinkers. That's just not true. And it's not borne out in the most recent election. Katie Hobbs, the new governor, she named as chair of her transition, a guy named Andy Kunasik, who is a former Republican Maricopa County Board of Supervisors member, who is from a like Republican dynasty family. In fact, Mm. he is the brother of Karen Robeson, who was the uh, candidate who the Republican candidate Carrie Lake defeated in the Republican primary. Andy Kanasek is a Republican. He is the chair of Katie Hobbs' transition team. That is not a Democrat who's not coming to the table to appeal to all voters. The new attorney general is is a woman named Chris Mays. She was until very recently, she's a Democrat. She was until very recently a Republican. She was a lifelong Republican. She was a the chair of the Arizona Corporation Commission, statewide elected Republican office. So, you know, Adrian Fontes, the new secretary of state, he is a person who has worked very closely with Republicans like Stephen Richter, the Maricopa County clerk, who is a kind of like not election denying Republican. So I think the idea that that's the reality on the ground in Arizona is not true and it's not A fair way. Her colleague, Mark Kelly. Yeah. He has people on his staff who were staffers in McCain's office. It's actually a very melting potty kind of state politically. Yeah. I think that cinema has a a vision of herself and a vision of the way that she wants to have an impact that is out of step with the Democratic agenda (laughs) or priorities but i don't think that's about her fellow democrats in arizona whatsoever.
0: okay. all right, so the outrage is coming more nationally as opposed to from arizona.
1: oh no, democrats in arizona are outraged by her. Okay. i think <laughs> but they're outraged because of the narrative that she's pushing oh. that they forced her out because because they're so extreme, right? And right. that's why i give you all these examples of yeah, yeah, yeah. the most prominent democrats in arizona are Doing able to. Yeah. The opposite of like who are trying to appeal to Republicans and bringing Republicans in to the inner inner sanctum to be like yeah. let's govern together.
0: So I see. So there's plenty of blame to go around, but there are examples <laughs> of uh, elected officials who are displaying bipartisanship in fact. And we have it in our district too. There's um our state senator Scott Wilk has democrat he's a Republican uh a Rep- Republican in California, which is saying something, but he has Democrats on his team. I think his chief of staff is a Democrat. So I think there's a way for, you know, cats and dogs to, uh, you know, lions and lambs to lay down together, you know? Um, so I haven't even asked you about forward. So forward, the forward party, you're, you're an, an advisor to the forward party. What we've already talked a lot about, some of your diagnoses of what's wrong in our politics, and our culture more broadly. But can you speak more specifically to some of those things that you think are wrong and the kind of prescription that the forward party can be as to why you're involved, why you're an advisor, and what you see uh, for the future for the forward party, near future?
1: Well, I think that the way in which you use the word prescription, I think the way in which both major parties are prescriptive is a big part of the problem. That's part of why I'm defending the Arizona Democrats who are not being that way. Yeah. But I think that for the forward party, which is co-chaired by Andrew Yang and Christy Todd Whitman. So two prominent people from two different parties. And uh, I think that the forward party reflects an attempt to bring some energy and firepower to an approach that 60% of Americans want. 60% of Americans don't feel very hot on either party, right? And yet we exist in this system where our choices are decided at the polls, P-O-L-E-S, the polls and the polls, but the P-O-L-E kind of polls, instead of by the broader populace. That's not true in states that have uh, have passed democracy reforms like ranked choice voting, nonpartisan primaries. I tend to think that nonpartisan primaries are a more important reform than ranked choice voting because a ranked choice voting approach in a closed system in a primary system just reinforces and perpetuates that those two two very different sides and lack of consensus. But I think that the forward party can do two things. One, it can really, I think, make the case for a new way forward that incorporates some of those reforms that we're talking about. It can make the case for a politics that is not prescriptive. Mm. And the other thing that it can do is that one of the biggest problems facing independent candidates and everyone, when you pull them, of course, everyone wants more independent candidates. They want more choices. Our founders feared the situation that we're in now. They didn't want to have two very powerful parties. They feared the duopoly. Yeah. But- it is very hard to run as an independent candidate. Even if you're in a place where it's easy to get on the ballot, the the uh, The growth of campaign tools like tech, data-driven pr- products, you need a voter file, you need a canvassing app, you need a way to collect money, all the infrastructure that it takes to run a campaign today, most tech is partisan. It's very hard to figure, it's hard to find consultants who will work with you It's hard to, there are no tools to be had. And so one of the most practical and immediate functions that the forward party can serve is building an ecosystem and infrastructure for independent candidates to be able to uh, get more even with candidates from the two major parties uh, at the ballot box. And the forward party is not, people are always like, the forward party is gonna be a spoiler, but the forward party is not focused on, the presidential election in 2024 or yeah. uh spoiling really close races although as my friend david jolly would say isn't the whole system kind of spoiled already yeah, yeah. but the forward party is really focused on the 500 races in the u.s there are 70 of the 500 elected offices in the u.s are uncontested uncompletely completely uncontested that wow. is that's that's unwell. Our democracy is unwell. Seventy percent of elected offices are uncontested, and local offices like your local county clerk, people on your town council, people on neighborhood commissions, those are the offices and the uh, the elected officials who have the biggest impact on our daily lives. Right. Yeah. The reason that you know we get so we we spend so much time and energy focused on what's happening federally, right, but the difference between living in california or arizona or nebraska or montana or new hampshire most of those differences come from who are the people in your state legislature who's on your town council people want you know their garbage to be picked up on time they want (laughs) their kids to be safe they want their schools to be good and so a, a thing that really appeals to me is just getting back to helping people to be connected to their own politics and to get away from all politics being national in a way that may seem counterintuitive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you say that because one of the most influential guys in local politics here is the guy who runs the uh the Burtech, the regional Burtech, which is mm. the you know, the garbage company basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so I- I've gone way over. There's so much more that I could ask you, but I- I'm gonna start to land this this plane. And uh one of the one of the things I wanted to ask you, actually if your mom was listening, I'd be remiss (laughs) if I didn't ask you if you had anything else you'd like to share.
1: Well, that's funny that you say that about my mom, because actually when I told you before we began recording, so here's the thing I'll share. When I said that's sort of like a deposition question. Yeah. The reason I said that is that my mother, um, she's a recovering litigator (laughs) and she, she would always at the end of deposition, something she learned from an an early mentor was to always say at the end of a deposition, was there anything that I didn't ask you that you had expected me to ask you about? And my mother, this, my mother was practicing. She was a corporate litigator like in the nineties, like big tobacco, right? Like large, you know, like Pittsburgh, like large cases where there was big, you know, well-known cases. And so you're deposing people like you're deposing, Uh, people who are maybe like mid-level employees who never expected to be opposed, but maybe have a lot of information. And most of the time they would say, no, nothing, nothing. And then occasionally, right. Something just spills out and just flows out. So no, I don't, I don't have anything that I wish I'd been asked about or was expecting to, except (laughs) to share that anecdote. Since you mentioned my mother, it's a good, it's a good interview. I use it in interviews
0: actually uh one of our first big interviews when we started the program was with Anna Palmer and mm. uh I, at the end I, whenever I get a great journalist on I always try to take some time afterwards and say hey what what can I do to improve yeah. um and Anna Anna said that uh, that that's a good question to wrap up with but I have here just to uh you know peek behind the curtain I've heard folks two two different interviews that you did where this uh this uh, anecdote came up so that's
1: oh really I must mention it a lot then.
0: Yeah. No, I, you know, I try to do a lot of preparation, so it's not to waste. I'm,
1: I'm shocked, actually. You know what Joe Walsh asks people in his podcast is he asks people a question that I love, which is he and it's often people who are well known uh, and are have quite at least somewhat public lives. And he, he they have somewhat public lives. And he says, what's one thing that you wish people understood about you?
0: That's a good and question.
1: People give interesting people give interesting answers.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it, so I, the way we ended ours. There was two things that we ended ours with Joe. One was I knew that he and I voted differently on specific issues, but I wanted to talk about our priorities and values that fed into the way we ended up voting on specific issues. And I was really glad we talked about it that way because I found that we share a lot of the same values. We might end up coming out the other side on two different sides of an issue, but the values that we start with are a lot more similar. So I wish I wish more folks had those kinds of conversations. And I think some good work is being done. There, are, There's a groundswell of organizations, whether it's the, um, the Village Square, my good pals over there, or uh, Braver Angels. Um, there's a bunch of organizations that are trying to have more of those conversations. But um, the other way we ended, I heard him, he was on uh, with Reed Galen the other day, and I heard him do do this with Reed. He ended with me. He goes, no, Corey, thank you. Mm. <laughs> he's like really dead serious about it, like for what you're doing. It was so it was very endearing. So I don't know if you'd remember me, but it was a very um, – it, it it made it, that conversation be him taking the time to spend an hour or so with me was uh, m- made a big impact. It was very. I'm sure you.
1: he. I'm sure he would. He remembers. He remembers everyone.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. So, do you have any questions for me before we wrap up?
1: What inspired you to start this podcast?
0: Oh boy. So, really, it started. Okay, I've never. I've been asked that before, and I've always answered about the the when I became. Uh, I grew up in an observant Jewish family and became a Christian about 20-something, 22 years ago. Um, And uh, being able to have difficult conversations about religion with my family was something Mm. that came with great difficulty, especially in those first three or four years. But then also becoming a Christian, I became a Christian because there were some theological propositions that I really bought into. Um, you know, Jesus's what, what I later learned was the Sermon on the Mount to me was just a really profound devar Torah, like a explanation of Torah, like Jewish people's, the Hebrew yeah. Bible. But I learned that wasn't, that wasn't a prominent feature of American evangelicalism. Uh, so I found myself having a lot of really hard conversations about politics with my brothers, and sisters at the church and, and uh, brothers, and sisters in Christ, you know, in the church. So, uh, but What I haven't, the answer that I haven't given to that question is that, you know, being in a New York Jewish family, the baby, I was the youngest of the family, doesn't really get to say anything in the big dinner conversations. So this is just my way of taking some space and being able to participate in conversations and ask questions I want to ask. And so anyway, I've never shared that part. My brother might listen to this and get to the end and be like, what? what the fuck, man? Come on. You know, that's cool. Yeah,
1: that's cool. Well, I'm a classic, like only slash oldest child. So my, my youngest, my, my younger brother who who's now becoming a a transactional attorney probably would share similarly being <laughs> sort of not <laughs> his yeah. voice is not adequately heard, but yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. All right. Yeah. So um, where can we find you online and all, and, I don't know if you want folks to find Mockingbird, like where can we find you online and all the great work that you're doing? <laughs>
1: that's such a good question. It's so much more loaded than it was a short time ago, but for now I'm still on Twitter. Okay. At Lucy M. Caldwell. And that's the best way to find me though. It's, it's kind of, I have to warn people. It's like a mix of political hot takes and dog photos.
0: Oh yeah. The dog, I love the dog <laughs> photos. Sometimes you get a mani petty and you show you the, the nails and well, you know, that was a treats. special,
1: that was a special request. I would never, I would actually never do that, but I took a picture of Panatone, and someone said, could I see, could I see your nails? So that <laughs> was great. No, yeah. actually my latest online obsession that I found through Twitter is, and it's, it's from your state is that there's this ranch in Ohio that is called, Rancho Grande, maybe, and they got snow this week. Oh. And so some of their content went viral because they have a baby camel.
0: Oh. And
1: so I've basically just, you know, I've just been sort of compulsively now watching videos of the, and the baby, baby camel, camel is probably like weighs a thousand pounds now. It's not small. Yeah. Uh, but I love dogs and animals and I love kind of the West and love the outdoors. And so I've just in the last 24 hours been. That's compulsively like sending my husband videos of this ranch. Like, we have to go be with the baby camel. Anyway, good stuff still happens on Twitter, is what I'm saying.
0: Yes, your dog pictures are awesome. And you took a picture <laughs> of like a Christmassy cookie or something like that. um uh, I forgot what it was called, but it, there, there was like a Christmassy foodie, snacky cookie thing. But what I noticed was the slippers. The the slipper, your slippers got into the picture and that was kind of cute. Yeah,
1: those were good. That was my best pandemic purchase, frankly.
0: (laughs) So uh, going back to Ojai real quick, if you do get a chance to come out here, get to Ojai the back way. So Mm. a lot of people try to access it as quickly as possible off the 101. Take the route. um, There's the the 136 that goes out from my house directly to Ventura. Um, a, A river used to run through there, but now it's this pretty straight kind of four-lane highway. It's not a freeway. Um, But you take the 150 and it goes through these beautiful orchards and fields. And then you go through kind of a windy mountainy part that drops you into Ojai. And that's the way to enter into Ojai. Oh, it's Mm, just magical. That's
1: a good, that's a very good tip. I'm going to, I'm going to remember that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If you're coming out, just let me know. And I, I have to buy you drinks or dinner or whatever. Yeah. And I'll, I'll show you the route there. And absolutely.
1: Um, have you ever seen that SNL skit that is, you know, the Californians and they're like, uh, they're like, he's late. And then they keep they're like, well, I was like, I was on the 405 and I, you know, the, and then I took, you know, I got off on Sepulveda. It's like so funny. It's like a great California traffic.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. If we're lucky, Madrid will be down here, and and uh, we'll make it. We'll make it a thing. So
1: yeah, uh, love Mike.
0: Yeah, one of my favorites. One of my favorites. So, um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for putting in OT. This is uh, got, Well,
1: thank you. Pleasure yeah. to be with you.
0: It was really nice. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcast, and tell a friend about Talk Politics and religion without killing each other. We're easier to recommend than ever. Politics and religion. us. It's politics and religion. us. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's what the "and" spelled out, A-N-D. politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at tpandrpod. You know, tpandrpod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.